Well, please turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, find verse 22 to chapter 4, verse 1, where we'll focus our attention this morning as we launch ourselves back into this profound passage where we see what God gives us in what we often call work. I want to put a couple of numbers in your mind. The first one, 90,000. 90,000 hours. Or 11,258 hour days. Or 10 years, 5 months, nonstop. Those all describe the normal work life of the average American, according to the Gettysburg College of Industrial Science. 90,000 hours. If you go to church on Sunday, and most Wednesdays, you know, a good Christian, and you find your church career about 80 years, you know, you're taken there as a baby and you go there until you're in your 80s, you'll spend about 10,000 hours with God's people. Do you see a difference? 90,000 hours at work, 10,000 hours at church. That means over the course of your life, for every hour you spend at church, you spend nine at work. For every hour at church, nine at work. And that's pretty much best case scenario. Work. If those who claim to follow Christ don't understand how to follow Christ at work, they are not following Christ. Work. A place where you spend the majority of your life. How could you claim to follow Christ and not follow him at work? Work, a place where most of your practical pursuits are serving the whims and needs and desires of a boss or a company or a loan payment or a bottom line, and often not Christ. I don't think Paul had that exact thought in his mind as he worked through helping the Colossians understand work, but I would guess it was something close. Most of your life is what we often call work. Are you living for Christ at work? Paul, in his wisdom, doesn't merely give us tools to be a good employee or tools to review our job with or a strategy for being a better person or practical methods for maximizing the margin in our life. Paul gets right to the heart. And what is your heart while you're at work? That's what you need to answer today. When you're at work, where's your heart? Paul doesn't answer that question for us, but he puts that question to us. His instruction in some ways, it flies at 60,000 feet in the upper stratosphere over the nitty-gritty details of our work life. And yet his instruction is immediately and provocatively applicable to all of us, from toddlers to students, doctors to moms to farmers to pastors to interns to retirees to the unemployed. Paul couldn't care less about your W-2. He's not worried about your timesheet last week. He really isn't interested in your HR review. Instead, way more important, of extreme significance and final authority in your life, is how you work for God, pleasing to God. It doesn't matter who signs the check. Are you working for God? Maybe you write the check but you still work for God. Maybe you work for free. Maybe your parents tell you allowance is a social construct. <laughs> no matter. You work for God. And friend, Paul isn't coming up with something new. Paul has been demonstrating what the Bible has demonstrated since the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created when God's first recorded act for us was work, he forever infused work with the dignity of himself. God did not declare work good and allow others to do it. God worked. He created. He accomplished. He worked. And he forever affirmed the goodness and the glory of work. But as you know, every job, even for those people who love their jobs, there's always a part of their jobs where they weren't getting paid to do their job, they'd leave. Work. Even the word work in our culture has taken on a bad or a negative connotation. So is there more to work than we give it credit for? 
Is there more to work that we give it credit for? Can our temporal occupations foster eternal affections from God? Can our finite earthly labors bring everlasting heavenly glory? When you pulled in to work on Tuesday, after a wonderful day off on Monday, what was your heart? As you got ready to put it in park and hop out of your car to go into work, were you considering how you were seeking God's glory? Or were you thinking about those things on your desk that you knew would be waiting for you? Friends, our work is our opportunity to glorify God in a majority of our life. Maybe you're a grandma and you think, I'm done with work. No, maybe your work is quilting for the glory of the Lord and the benefit of your family. There's always something for you to do. Maybe you're a middle management career guy and you spend all day telling people to do what you told them yesterday you were going to tell them to do today and then that you know you're tomorrow you're going to have to tell them that it didn't get done you have to do today, tomorrow. That better be working for the glory of the Lord and not for the paycheck. That better be working for the good of fellow humanity and not for a company because God has designed our work for a greater purpose than we often remember. By God's grace, through his love and his creation, by the clarity of his word and the beauty of his intention, we find our labor can always be for him, no matter what our labor is. And our work, whether viewed as eternal and impressive or fleeting and puny by the world, it doesn't matter because it can be the joy of our heavenly father. Work is an amazing thing. If you were with us a month ago or so, you saw how we worked our way through these thoughts on work. The Bible never condemns work. The Bible always commends those who labor, even though our work, especially hard work and low-paying jobs, it's fallen on hard times. The Bible unequivocally reports that work is good according to God's word. So when our feelings don't match the truth of God's word, what do we need to do? We'll probably not trust our feelings, but look to what God has said. God says work is good. Even though sin caused work to be difficult and labor became inefficient and the connection between what we do and the presence of God seems distant and even broken, what we do is designed to glorify God by God. God's truth is that we were created in his image to do what? Worship him. How? Labor. Work. Adam was to keep the garden, to preserve the garden, to work the garden to cultivate the garden, to produce something from the garden for the glory of God. Work is not a demeaning consequence of the curse, but a path to glory because God has created us to bear his image, to reflect his glory to himself and to his creation. And through work, we have every opportunity to obey God, even on this side of Eden's gates. But our work has moved from gardeners serving a perfect God in a perfect garden to ambassadors serving a perfect God in an imperfect and fallen world, bringing the message of life and light to the land of darkness. The curse has actually caused the priority of our work to be even more beautiful. We have greater responsibility. Souls depend on our work. We must glorify God in our work by loving God with our whole being, our whole life. On Sunday, yeah, and Monday. We love him by caring for him, proclaiming him to the world around us, fueling the greatest, fulfilling the greatest commandments. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor and yourself. And finding ourselves fulfilling the great commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth to make more and better disciples. These things have to be done at work. You spend 90,000 hours of your life at work. Are you serving the Lord at work? Your work, if you're created... If you're creative and not engaged in sin, your work can do all these things. Doesn't matter what you do, as we'll see in our passage today. If you can't in any way stretch the purpose of your work to accomplish the greatest commandments and to advance the great commissions, then you should probably consider should you be at your work? And say if it was easy, just can you do it? And if you can, then do it. That's what you've been created to do. The Bible has a lot to say about your work, and everything it says puts the glory back in your grind. 
The Bible helps elevate our work and our, our self out of a timesheet mentality and lift us up to worship God in what we do, no matter what we do. Paul proves to us that not only does the Bible give us theological foundation for work and worshipful motivation for work, but also practical help in the difficulty of work. Today we'll see Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 22 and 23, how we can live our earthly calling and see God turn our grind into his eternal glory. So please stand with me. We'll read the whole section, verse 22 to chapter 4, verse 1. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege and joy it is to be your children, to come to you to worship you together this morning and to see from your word that we don't leave your presence when we leave here. That tomorrow when we go to work in various jobs or tonight or tomorrow night and we pick up our vocation, we don't stop laboring for an eternal purpose that is your eternal glory. But our hearts don't feel that. So help us. Help us to see what you've shown us here in your word to live every day everywhere, always for you. We want this. We know we need this, but we can't conjure this up on our own. So help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. You may be seated. A month or so ago, we dug into our earthly calling in verses 22 and 23, and we began with our humble identity. Paul's addressing specifically, if you remember, slaves, bondservants or slaves. Onesimus, the subject of the letter that you'll read in Philemon, the letter named Philemon, he was a runaway slave, a convict in the eyes of the law and the culture of Colossae. But after salvation, once Onesimus is saved, Paul sends him back carrying this letter, Colossians, and likely uh, Philemon as well. And Philemon was there listening to this letter with this freshly returned Onesimus. And you can just imagine that was awkward at best. And what does Paul say about it? Nothing. He just says, look, this is how we live, even with this humble identity. But he brings dignity in the midst of humility. He brings this dignity that slaves, those viewed as property in their culture, those who did not have a societal right to say no, slaves were those who in truth were the ones who would receive an inheritance from the Lord that they must pursue even now. So serve the Lord. This would have been culturally inappropriate, mind-blowing for people to hear that slaves are going to get an inheritance, that slaves are able to serve and glorify God. So as Paul addresses slaves, don't miss his argument. Remember, if he wanted to, he could have addressed middle-class shop-owning gladiator moms who drove chariots, but he didn't. He talks to the slaves because he's arguing from the greater to the lesser, from the harder to the easier. If these things are true of slaves in their condition and in their position, they should be true of employees in our condition and in our position. Because Paul proves dignity in the life-dominating and soul-assaulting occupation of slavery, we have to see dignity in every occupation. But the dignity comes through living out our worship even in the workplace, the dignity comes from what God has done, not necessarily just what we do with our hands. We obey in everything, verse 22. We're the employees with a comprehensive obedience. That's our earthly calling. Our obedience is not seasonal. Our perspective is sensible. Paul says these are your earthly 
masters. Don't get confused. They're earthly masters. They all have an expiration date. You serve a heavenly master that doesn't, but you live here and serve your earthly masters. Our true master is always and forever our King Jesus. We obey earthly masters in order to obey our heavenly master. And our obvious integrity is our reputation. It's, it's honest. And our effort is authentic. It's not something conjured up. There's nothing about us that we need to hide. There's no part of our life that's off limits. There's no part of us that seeks to please man before we long to please God. I'd guess if you're a, a manager or you're an employer, if you're a company owner, you're like, I'd take some of those employees. Why are they so hard to find, even amongst Christians? Well, I think it's because of that last qualification, that last pursuit, the end of verse 22. This is why things are so elusive. This is why it's so hard for us to be good employees and yet so necessary to drive our earthly calling in the direction of our heavenly benefit. What is it? We must fear the Lord. Verse 22 at the end, that's what Paul calls us to, a godly drive of fearing the Lord. In the big picture, this is the seventh principle that will produce inevitably glory in your grind. If you fear the Lord, the glory of God will be produced from you exactly what God desires of you, his glory. Maybe the obvious question that we should ask is, what were the slaves tempted to fear? I would guess something pretty similar, definitely not the same, but similar to what employees are, are tempted to fear. Who were slaves tempted to fear? Their owners. But their owners could do far worse to them. They could sell their children if they desired. They could sell them to another owner, maybe a worse owner if they wanted to. They could send them to war in their stead if they chose to. Oftentimes, the terrible realities of slavery is camouflage, saying, well, it's the best interest of the owners to take care of their slaves. Well, sure it was. But when has fallen humanity acted with dignity and done what was best for them or anyone else? Slave owners had accountability in Roman law, but slaves rarely saw that accountability produce goodwill and peace between slaves and their owners. So Paul says two things with this one statement. Paul says, fear the Lord. But he also says, don't fear man. If you're fearing the Lord, you're not fearing man. Be motivated by fearing the Lord. Don't be motivated by fearing your earthly master. So what should your godly drive at work be? Your boss? No. I fear the Lord. Why do we work hard? Why do we have integrity? Why do we risk present comfort and future well-being? Why do we maintain allegiance to the right things? Because we fear the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean, and then we'll go to what it is. Fearing the Lord is not cowering in terror, hiding from God. That's not... Fearing the Lord, that's some sort of fearing consequences of the Lord. Instead, fearing the Lord is trembling in reverence, realizing your only hope is in pursuing the Lord. You can't get far from him because he's your only hope. Psalm chapter 2, verse 11 says it well. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I think we have to see every time the Bible talks about fearing the Lord, it may begin with an inaction, but it always leads to action. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. The Bible has a lot to say about serving the Lord and fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord is the beginning of knowledge we see. Fearing the Lord results in worshiping the Lord with reverence. Fearing the Lord results in knowing the Lord in truth. Fearing the Lord results in serving the Lord with passion. For the believer, when we rightly fear the Lord, we have a, a godly drive that's unquenchable to make much of him. Nothing can thwart it. Nothing can stop it. Our boss can't keep us from serving the Lord, no matter how inadequate they are. I like how Jerry Bridges gives us a test for knowing if we fear the Lord. He says, I can know if I truly fear God by determining, one, if I have a genuine hatred of evil, and two, an earnest desire to obey his commands. If you fear the Lord, then you'll hate evil and you'll want to obey Christ. See, the fear of the Lord produces in us a passion for him. It doesn't cause us to run from him. It causes us to run to him, a passion to obey him, a passion to know him, a passion to worship him, a passion to serve him. You cannot fear the Lord and fail to work for him. 
if you fear the Lord, you'll be longing to work for him. Fear the Lord. Run from sin. We make that connection. But fear the Lord and work hard for him, we often miss that connection. Fear the Lord. You work hard because the Lord is over everything in your life. Again, Colossians 3.22, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord is what takes our healthy, practical pursuits of just good morality at work and turns it into worship to him. Fearing the Lord is what takes a, a good employee from being employee of the month to being one who honors and loves and serves the Lord eternally. Fearing the Lord takes our good pursuits and turns them into eternal worship for God. Humility, comprehensive obedience, sensible perspective, obvious integrity, honest reputation, authentic effort. Those things will make you employee of the month. They won't glorify God. Unless your heart is after fearing him. Fear the Lord. For you to worship the Lord, the drive behind your effort must be his glory because you fear him. You revere him. And you don't do it on Sunday together only. You do it on Monday because you fear him. You do it every day. You don't do it just at church. You do it everywhere because you fear him. And where is he? He's all over your life. There's no part of your life that's your own. It's all for him. You can notice our command to fear him or be fearing him is in the present tense. It's something that doesn't fizzle or fade depending on workload or responsibility. We're always fearing him. So we're always laboring for him. So while we have many earthly masters, we have one heavenly Lord, a Lord with power and authority over everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He is Lord. He's to be feared. And that fear of him, that reverence to him, being motivated by your love for him, that's what drives your earthly calling. That's why you work hard. That's why you labor, because it's for him. Imagine, if you want a miserable life at work, I'll tell you how to achieve it, okay? Here's how you achieve a miserable work life. You make your efforts about something other than Jesus, If you're saved, you can't live in this sin-cursed and fallen world with satisfaction and know Christ and not live for Christ. First of all, that's what he saved you for. Any who wants to come to me, Jesus says, come on with it. Let's go. Anyone can follow me, but deny yourself, pick up your cross, your cross and follow me. Do you think that that meant Sunday? Do you think that that meant except for work? All of your life is to be lived for him. You can't flip your Christian switch off when you go to work. You don't just all of a sudden become a good, morally neutral employee. When you try and do that, you realize work is hollow and meaningless, and you hate it. If you don't find satisfaction in Christ and motivation from fearing him and living for his glory, you won't find satisfaction in your work. No matter how cool the logo for your company is or no matter how exciting what you do is, eventually you're going to realize it's a job and all it does is pay you and wear you out. Eventually you'll get bored, then you'll fall into laziness. You can't expect a job to excite you for decades if you're doing it for a job in hopes of finding your passion, maybe like loading trucks or something. Eventually, you're going to get tired of loading trucks, and you're going to think, you know what? I should unload trucks. And you're going to go be a truck unloader instead of a truck loader. And guess what you'll find after a few years of unloading trucks? It's no more exciting than loading trucks. It's not necessarily what you do that brings joy and passion and fulfillment, but it's why you do. Consider what Paul is saying. Why do you do these things? So that you can please the Lord. Please the Lord. Why do you go to work? To please the Lord. Maybe you're one of the approximately 72 Idea Tech employees here at GBC. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Fiber Rush. Epic. 
Grow, grow, grow. Love it. Watch those checks. Grow, grow, grow. Don't forget to tithe. But anyway, I'm happy for you and your international vacations, but here's the thing. If you're living for idea tech, it's going to fizzle. Eventually, you'll realize you're putting a piece of glass in the ground and billing people so they can watch Netflix without buffering. That's the purpose for your life? All your hard work to grow a company is going to be forgotten when that company is purchased by a bigger company who doesn't care about your long hours. They're not impressed. You're going to get an out-of-town manager that only checks in on you via Zoom. And he's going to micromanage you until you want a lateral promotion in a different place. Or there's going to be a merger that causes your what you thought was fat retirement to shrink. And you're going to wonder, what do I do now? And then you're going to think, idea tech's not what it used to be. And you're going to start to wilt like the chief's receivers on Thursday night. (laughs) Then what? Well, what has been driving you? If internet freedom is driving you, you're going to fail. But if you've been laboring honestly, with integrity, focused on pleasing the Lord and fearing him, you'll be just fine. Because if that's who you are, an idea tech crumbles, nothing that matters has changed for you. Because you know your master's in heaven. You don't need to worry about what's next. Today you please him. And tomorrow you'll please him. Doesn't matter whose name's on your shirt. Doesn't matter what logo's on your check. You please him. I really love some of the strategic efforts of management and good companies, maximizing production, minimizing costs, forecasting revenue, increasing efficiency. It's all cool stuff to me. It's interesting. I love good plans. 10-year plan, I like it. Five-year plans, it's good. But a yearly plan, I love them. I love them so much I make the staff do them. I don't know if they like them or not, but they have to. Paul gives you the passion for your yearly plan, the motivation for your every effort, the drive for always being an excellent employee has nothing to do with where you work, but it has everything to do with who saved you. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. When you fear the Lord, you long to serve him. Where you work is just an outlet to serve him. A good and perfect God who, who looked at you as an enemy because of your sins against him and then chose by his grace to save you, to redeem you, to purchase you out of death, to ransom you out of the domain of darkness and bring you into the kingdom of his beloved son and put you at his table to be his child. That's what he has done for you. Who do you want to live for? How could you live for anybody else? He saved you for good works so that you could walk in him. Be careful, friend. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And he's the one who says, I love you. You're mine. Now, live for me. Here's what I've given you to do for me. Our fear is reverence. Our fear is Worship. How can we not but labor with the knowledge that God is watching, not as an evil taskmaster, but as a loving father, longing to see his goodness reflected in us? How can we surf the web when we're supposed to be working? How can we slough off responsibility when we claim to have been changed by Christ and set free from sin? How can we allow ourselves to be viewed as lazy by those around us when we say we've been saved to work for God? How great is your God? What's your work ethic? That's how great he is. We can't not serve him when we bring him to work with us. Maybe say, well, you don't know my job. Paul was ready for you. Look at verse 23. 
whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Paul tells us very clearly that no matter what we do, there is opportunity to bring glory to God in our work. And our efforts on God's behalf are to have an extensive application. Whatever you do, not if you're in the upper echelon of geopolitics, then you're important to God's plan and you matter, live for him and your work. Uh, Not if you're a doctor and you're literally holding people's lives in your hands, then you live for God and you can be important in your work. Not if you're viewed as important by the world, then God will view your work as important and then he'll, no. Isn't that silly how Christians often look at our work in the same, if not really similar way as the world looks at their work? That shouldn't be the same. We shouldn't have the exact same markers for importance. We cannot because our ultimate litmus test for success or the boxes that we have to check with our job reviews need to be different, not identical to the world. Paul says, whatever you do, our entire work existence is in Paul's view here. Whatever you do, he throws his net over your work life. And he says, all of it, anything, everything you do at work, in truth, you do for the Lord. Nothing escapes the whatever of Paul. You think your reports that your boss makes you do are useless? Doesn't matter. Paul says, do it for the Lord. Whatever you do from inventory checks to defining the mission of your organization, from ordering paper clips to setting the budget, all of it is able to honor the Lord. Everything is under the, pure, the purview of whatever here. This is the most strategic and calculated use of ambiguity Paul could have. It's broad and encompassing. The entirety of everything that constitutes work is in view here. Remember, Paul's done this to us before. Look up in verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through him. Paul says, once you are his, everything that you say, think, do, feel, everything is for him. Once you're in Christ, all of your life is for him. Now Paul just simply ratchets down the scope to zoom in onto one thing. And he focuses on work. Whatever you do in work, you work for the Lord. The range and extent could not be more comprehensive. This should be humbling to the self-exalted. And it should be encouraging to the humble. Maybe you're somebody that has a fancy job title. Listen, God is not impressed. Maybe you have some job title that your mom blushed when you were promoted and she's so proud of her baby. God don't care. He is not impressed. It's about what you do in our culture and world. But to God, it's about why you do what you do. Maybe you, you're in a dead-end job and there's no like glass ceiling over you. It's a concrete reinforced steel ceiling above you. There is no way you're getting past grunt work. You are a grunt. You've been a grunt. You'll always be a grunt. But here's the beauty of your grunt work. You can glorify God in your grunt work. It's not about what you do. It's about how and why you do what you do. Recall again, who's Paul talking to? Slaves. Slaves who in the Roman Empire occasionally had jobs of prestige and import, but rarely. Most often they had jobs that nobody wanted. Jobs that held no future. Jobs that accumulated no wealth. Jobs that earned no glory. Jobs that could only be done by those who could not refuse to do them. Jobs that were assaults against personal dignity. Washing the feet of ungrateful house guests who treated you as if you were on the same level as an ox. Cleaning bathroom equipment for those who would rather pretend you weren't even there than communicate with you. And I realize some of you have jobs that you don't like and I wouldn't like them either necessarily. And you think nobody would, ra- would, would want them. And maybe you're correct on the human plane. But have you considered that that in your job at the button factory where all you do is push the buttons or stock the shelves or ring up the same item over and over or wipe the same set of noses over and over, when you do what you do for the glory of the Lord and him alone, what happens? Your efforts are marked down in heaven's chart of accounts and God looks at that and says, that one, that's for me. She did that for me. He did that for me. It doesn't matter who you think you are. If you do something that's not for him, it don't matter. 
It doesn't matter how lowly your life is. When you do it for him, it will forever matter. The eternal God looks at your labor and says, that was for me. I saved him. He lives for me. I saved her. She lives for me. Whatever you do can be for God forever. Can be. Can be. Doesn't mean it is. Ordinarily, because you guys are kind to us, you give pastors a free pass on this kind of stuff. Like, well, we work here, so surely everything we do is for the Lord. You don't know us well enough. Just because you're doing something spiritual, just because you're serving in a ministry, just that doesn't mean it's for the Lord. Where's the battleground played out? Where's the war won? It's in the heart. Just because what you're doing is supposed to bring glory to God doesn't mean that it will. What's the determining factor? It's not how important it is. It's not how impressive you think it might be. It's your heart. Is it seeking to make much of God? Don't forget what Paul's just taught us. Not by way of eye service as people believers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. It's not how it looks from the outside. It's how God knows it from the inside. It's the heart. If you have sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, what you do will bring glory to God. Whatever you do will bring glory to God. Just as God instructed Israel through Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, what caused God to choose David, not some of his handsome and tall and more equipped and smarter brothers? Well, it sounds like it's because the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Friend, God is not impressed with how well you work and how well you do what you think you do really better than anybody else in the world. Here's the thing. God can do it better. Everything, this side of sin, that you can do as a job has the potential to glorify God. But where is potential turned into reality? Your heart. Maybe you say, but I'm stuck in this job and I don't see the benefit and I don't like it. It's not what I want to do. Maybe I can address something I think is so misunderstood in our Christian culture today. Calling. We all have this calling. We talk about calling. We ask little kids, what do they want to be when they grow up? Calling. So many make so much of calling. But the problem is we don't view calling in a biblical sense or a theocentric way. We view calling in a feelings-focused, man-centered way. But the problem With that is when we are the captain of the ship, we cause problems. We find the rocks, not the open sea. The result's extreme dissatisfaction among believers in their work that is supposedly for the Lord. And then there is a reasonable feeling that comes from people who claim to be true believers that they don't like their work. They hate their job. What on earth? is that. I'd call that evil. You're supposed to do everything in your life for the glory of God, but I hate my work because it's not what I want. Woo. Okay. Calling. Calling was something that was completely jacked up in the Western culture past, primarily in the Middle Ages. Calling was something that the reformers began to dismantle before the Reformation with the homogenization of the church and the state. There was two callings, a secular calling to everything outside of the church and the sacred calling to things in the church or government. So you had the secular blacksmiths and farmers. You had the sacred priests, monks, bishops, etc. problem is that this is nowhere in the Bible. So people like the reformers come along and they rightly crush this divide. Luther was famous for insisting to the chagrin of established religion that the farmer shoveling manure and the milkmaid milking her cow pleased God just as much as the pastor preaching and the bishop praying. He proved this by a focus on providence in the heart. Luther's application was a product of the Bible's wisdom applied to his culture, a culture where people often had zero choice in their vocation. They were a blacksmith because dad was a blacksmith. They were a farmer because dad was a farmer. They were a rope maker because they married into a rope making family. That's what they got to do. A hundred years later across the English Channel, the Puritans took the mantle of work from the reformers and they gave the church a gift that we often fail to open. The Puritans spoke of two callings for all. 
For all real, true believers, there's two callings. There's a general calling and a particular calling. The general calling is the same for every believer, and it's the most important calling of your life. For every believer, there's a calling on you to be converted and pursue righteousness, to love Jesus and look like Jesus. That's your job. What do you do for a living? Why not say that? My job is to look more like Christ. The priority of your life's work is to know Jesus and look like Jesus. We all share that general calling, the particular calling. It's how we serve God in our daily lives to love him, to love others, and to advance the gospel mission around the world. Seems today as if for many, the particular calling or what we often view as our job is the only calling that matters, and it's always only just up to us and our feelings. We find that we can determine our future by how we feel in our late teens and early 20s. It shouldn't be that way. The most important parts of our particular calling is how we're enabled to serve the Lord. Parents should help their kids in this. I need to help my kids in this. How? Talk to our kids about how our job relates to the beauty of the greatest commandments. What are the great commands? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. What's the great commission to, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Shouldn't it also include the workroom? Talk to our kids about these things. These are the important parts of our calling. If you can't explain that to your children, are you doing it? And if you're not doing it, can you do it and you're just unwilling and need to repent? Or do you need to find a different job? If you're not being obedient to the Lord, then change. If you are, then talk about the truth and the beauty of what God has asked you to do in your job to your kids. Show them what's pleasing to the Lord above all other things. Do your kids think you work for a paycheck or Christ? Because you taught them which, whichever one it is, you taught it to them. You don't labor for a boss as a Christian. They don't matter except for how they matter to Christ. You labor for the king. You don't seek to merely produce a product efficiently as a Christian. You seek to bring the king more subjects into his kingdom through the good news that he's entrusted to you, to be an ambassador for him, to be preached throughout the world, but especially where we work, where we spend 90,000 hours of our life. I wonder if we've forgotten our calling is from God for an eternal purpose. When we forget our calling is from God for an eternal purpose and not a temporary sales push, that's when people get unsatisfied. That's when people get disheartened. That's when people start to fizzle. So young people, aware on your list of pros and cons of choosing a career is the beauty of what God has asked you to do in your life, to love him, to love others, and to preach Christ. It should be at the top. Can I love the Lord in this job? Yes, keep pursuing it. Can I love and serve other people in this job? Yes, keep pursuing it. Can I advance the message of Christ in this job? Yes, keep pursuing it. If you cannot answer these questions with yes, not an easy yes, just a yes, then it would be disobedient to pursue it because God has asked you to do these things. And it will lead to dissatisfaction and disappointment every time. Why? Because you've been called to serve and love God, to love God through worshiping him in your work, to find satisfaction and obedience to him. If you choose to spend 90,000 hours of your life in a job that won't let you be obedient to the Lord, would you be surprised that you're unfulfilled? Outside of that obedience, you'll become exhausted with work, stressed out at work, weary of work, and you'll fall victim to burnout. Why? Because you're laboring for something that doesn't matter. Instead, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Your earthly calling is no different than what Adam and Eve were called to, a genuine, real labor. Paul tells us in the middle of verse 23 to work heartily. The NIV probably gets it a little bit better to work with all your heart. The idea is exhaustive, authentic, heart-motivated work. Genuine labor. Arising from within. You don't need a taskmaster to tell you what to do because you want to serve the Lord who you love and you fear. This idea of hard works on the endangered species list. 
Too many Christians seem to value their vacation over their vocation, but God doesn't. Rest is not the point of your life. Work is. Worship is the point of your life, not play. Is rest bad? Of course not. God instituted it. It's good. Is play bad? God wants us to enjoy life. There's nothing wrong with play. It can be even good. But what should our focus be? Labor for him because we love him more than ourselves. Motivated from within to produce for the Lord what he deserves. Laboring for the Lord is your calling. Whether you're 10 and in school learning geometry or eight times 10 and retired from an earthly career or you're disabled, it doesn't matter. You can still work heartily for the Lord. Anything from a prayer list to weeding a flower bed to making cards of encouragements for brothers and sisters, texting people that you love, helping them in any way that you possibly can, you can work heartily for the Lord no matter your employment status. Laziness and an idle life is our flesh tricking us, tricking us to believe the lie that it's better to rest than to work. You were saved for what? To serve who? The Lord Christ. By what? Work. God is our example. The Father works all things for our good. Christ upholds the universe by his power. The Spirit seals us and keeps us and preserves us. I'm banking on the Spirit not taking an early retirement. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24 and 5 is Solomon's wisdom in our work on display. He shows you how hard work is not the enemy of joy. We get that so backwards in our culture. If that's how you feel, then you need a heart change, not a promotion or a new career. The culture lies to you. You don't need something different to find satisfaction. Remember who is Paul talking to again in Colossians 3? To slaves. Solomon says to all of us, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24 and 5, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment. In his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. Again, Solomon says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Your genuine, exhaustive labor is a product of your affection for God, devotion to him, integrity to him, and fear of him. All of these under that. If you work hard but don't fear God, why do you work hard? Pride. If you don't work hard, you don't need to focus on working hard. You need to focus on fearing God. Because when you fear God, you'll want to work hard for him. When we rightly understand God, we will rightly worship him in our hearts and from our hearts be motivated to labor with passion for him. No matter our vocation, our calling is for us to live lives of labor for the glory of God wherever he puts us. Look at the end of verse 23. And remember again, Paul's talking to slaves who kept house, farmed, cooked, cleaned, hauled and burned trash, cared for animals, kept estates. They didn't have glorious jobs, never estates that they'd inherit. They weren't securing marvelous futures and decades of rest. They were all working in dead-end jobs, literally. Literally. End of verse 23, they were to be working as for the Lord and not for men. What a glorious purpose. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Sometimes I hear people in difficult work circumstances say, I just wish the Lord would tell me what to do. The sentiment is that surely God doesn't want me to struggle in the difficulty of this work. He would want me to find something that pays well and is easy. Christian, when you work an ugly, hard, difficult job, no matter what it is, but you pour your life into it because you fear the Lord and others see that you do your job, not because of your amazing boss, but because of the amazing reality of who God is to you, you will understand this glorious purpose of your job and your work is the same glorious purpose God gave Adam and Eve in their job and their work, to work for God, to accomplish for God, to achieve for God, to produce for God, to worship God, to glorify God. 
Paul tells the Romans in chapter 12, verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Be fervent in spirit. Don't be slothful in zeal. Serve the Lord. The street sweeper and the surgeon both glorify God. The pastor and the tree pruner both glorify God. Why? Because of what they do? Not really but because of why they do, because God has saved them to live for, to love and to serve him. When that's the passion of your heart and you're fearing God, then the reality of your life is Colossians chapter three, verses 23 and four. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do look forward to that, where this life of labor and toil on your behalf for your glory will be complete, and we will find ourselves in rest, in the beauty of a perfect work, no longer toiling against the sin's curse, but toiling just for your glory, seeing what you've offered to us come true and be full and complete, perfectly satisfying. But until then, help us to labor, to set aside ourselves, to make much of you. Help us to work, not so that others see us work hard, but so that you are pleased, so that we can worship you with our life. Help us because we need it. Our flesh pulls at us. The world pulls at us. We ask for you to pull at us. Change our hearts. Give us fear of you that causes obedience to you, that we might serve you with joy and gladness with all of our hearts and all of our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.